hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, I come before you and I hope that tonight, as we just read that word, it's a reminder to this beautiful, wonderful truth that, God, you welcomed us into your family. You welcomed the fatherless to the good father. You welcomed the orphan to the one that is and is to come. So, Father, we come before you and as we look to this word tonight, let it be a guiding force in our hearts to remind ourselves first who you are, what you've done for us, and what we hope to do for this immediate community and for the greater area of Miami-Dade to the utter ends of the earth. We love you, Father, and we come before you and thank you and praise you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. And with that said, I want to take a moment before we begin. So the way that I kind of like to start things off, the more that you get to know me, for those of you that don't know, I'm kind of the new guy around here. So again, like you're sizing me up, so that's okay. Um, So with that said, the way that I kind of like to start is I like to start with more of kind of like a conversational component because we're a family. And so I like to hear from the family, especially in light of what God is doing in the community of faith around here. And so what I want to do is take a moment and have a moment of some Thanksgiving reflections because we just came out of the beginning of the holiday season. How many of you already feel overwhelmed about the holidays and it's just began? Yes. Some of us are looking at the amount of Christmas parties we have to be at, all the different events we have to be at, all the travel, all the different reports you have to get in by the end of the year. Some of us are already feeling that tension of what the year end brings. But before we even worry about that kind of stuff, we need to take a moment and be thankful. So I want to ask you, feel wherever you're at, if you want to say something directly, if there is something that you are grateful for, I want to hear what you are grateful for in your life. Mm. Okay, um, yeah. Wow, and praise God. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Praise God. Hmm. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Melissa. Mm, praise God. And I know many of us in here probably have something that we're thankful for, but it's like, hold up, like you're asking me to talk out loud in front of people, like that's super weird, don't make me do that. So if there's somebody in your life that you have not told them why you're thankful for them or maybe a circumstance in your life, there are so many things that can be clouded because we take life and we focus on what is not right. 
We focus on what is wrong. We focus on what we don't have. We focus on the things that we aspire to have, yet we are not appreciative for what God has already given to us. We live in one of the most affluent regions in the entire world. We live in one of the most free areas in the entire world. And I say this to the gathering team whenever we gather and we take a moment to pray together before service, but just the fact that we're here in this moment in a building to be able to freely worship God without fear of persecution, without fear of condemnation, that is a simple privilege in itself. So let's never take the simple things for granted because we've taken our eyes of how to be grateful to what God has provided us. And so I know Thanksgiving can always bring a little bit of tension because usually Thanksgiving is one of those holidays where like if you have ever practiced like your political spinning abilities, like you've probably had to do that, right? Certain conversations you don't want to engage with, whether it's a blue or a red issue or it's a football team that you just have to bear and watch, whether it's the Lions every year or if I'm so sorry for you if you're a Cowboys fan, that's just, that's a sin in itself. Um, (laughs) But all the things that we do normally at Thanksgiving, but one of the things I just want to highlight to us before we get into the word is to help us to understand something that's happening in our culture. And so before the turkey bowl last Thursday, my wife and I, we were in our apartment, we were getting ready. And so we were watching a little bit of the parade kind of festivities before everything began. And then the commentators were talking about the phenomenon for many of us, we already know this phenomenon called Friendsgiving. How many of you have ever been to a Friendsgiving before? Okay. Yeah. Some of you probably went to the Friendsgiving that was last Thursday, the potluck that we had at the Metropolitan. So let's kind of walk back the idea of Friendsgiving. For some of us, Friendsgiving was the, the celebration you would go to because you weren't able to get home. How many of you have ever been to a Christmas party or a Thanksgiving party or maybe a holiday party that you went to because you weren't able to get home, so you spent it with your friends? You might have one of those experiences. But the commentator made this statement as they were kind of highlighting the phenomenon as Friendsgiving, and they made this statement. They said, friends have become the new family. So let's, first of all, there's nothing wrong with having friends because, first of all, sometimes friends can almost be better than family. Let's be real, right? There's some friends that you wish were family because some family members you wish weren't even your friends. You wish they were your worst enemies, right? But let's just recalibrate that idea that if we as a culture are moving into this idea that the people that we select to be a part of our social circles have more significance than the people that are biologically connected to us, we are creating preferential treatment of people in our lives. So we have to beware of that preferential treatment because the scriptures call that in the book of James, the sin of partiality. So if we are people that pick and choose the people that we want to hang out with solely by our affinity or just because we get along with them, what we're doing is we're practicing steps that might lead us into the tension that the writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to address. So we read the passage a little bit ago, but what I want to do is I want you to understand, for many of us, if you're here, if you're here for the first time or maybe you haven't been around the Bible in a while, what I like to do is kind of give you a snapshot of what we're going to be talking about before we move into the depths of it. So what I want you to understand, first, this book that we're going to read tonight, the book of Hebrews, there's movements that go through this book. There is a movement of what this writer is trying to do. He's trying to help people that are dispersed to help them to understand this big idea. 
that back in the day, there used to be this group of people called the prophets. These people were the ones that gave declarations of who God was, the instructions of God, as well as the direction they were supposed to follow. So the big kind of meta-narrative idea is this idea that we are going from the prophets to the true prophet. That's the big sweeping idea of what's happening in the book of Hebrews. So what happens in Hebrews is it begins in the first chapter of this book. If you want to, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along as we read it on the screens. It's this idea first in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much a superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellence than theirs. And so what the writer is doing is he's helping the followers, the people that are, he is writing to, the dispersed believers throughout the region, and he's writing to them to help them to understand that we back in the day used to listen to different sets of people. So first he addresses in this, he addresses the idea that we need to seek Jesus because Jesus is greater than the angels and the Torah. So if you were reading this and you were reading this in the original context, you were probably of Jewish descent, a believer in Judaism, practicing your belief in Yahweh. And so when you would follow the tenets of Yahweh, one of the directives is that you understood that Yahweh the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All things have been created by his breath and by his word. And so first, we need to recognize that Yahweh, from the beginning, created the heavens and earth. And along with that, he created the angels. And so those angels that have been messengers that we're about to get into the holiday season and sing about. We're going to talk about Gabriel and Michael. And in our series that we're going to kick off next week, Love Invites, we're actually going to be talking about these different people groups that were recipients of the message of the angels. So First, the writer is instructing the people to understand that Jesus is greater than angels, and he's greater than the law. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it, and by his fulfillment, he has become greater than the law. And so what's happening here is he's first moving the directive for us to understand, first, that he's greater than the angels and the Torah, and the next he goes into this movement of Jesus is greater than Moses as the original narrative was Moses leading the Israelites to the promised land because what's happening here is he's setting us up to understand that Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is delivering us to a greater promised land. And so as he does this directive, he moves next into this idea of the priesthood. So we have the prophets like Moses and then we have the priests and he uses this comparison of a man named Melchizedek. That's a mouthful if you ever want to try to name your kid that. Melchizedek for many of us, is a beautiful, wonderful, typological, to use a fancy word, typological example of who Christ was in that time. But Melchizedek was a foreshadowing, an allusion to the greater and true priest, that we were all going to be a part of the nation of priesthood. So the true and greater priest, Christ, delivers us from our sins, from the old sacrificial system. And then next, he uses this big picture culmination before we get into Hebrews chapter 13. He talks about the idea of the sacrifice and the covenant. 
Because the Old Testament sacrificial system was based on the idea that you have to daily repent of your sins in order to be in a righteous standing with God. Imagine if every day you had to wake up in your condo and you had to go out to your balcony and you had to sacrifice something in order for God to see you as acceptable every single day. But let's take it a step further. Imagine you had to come to this building every single day and offer something so that you would be acceptable in the eyes of God. That's a little bit ridiculous to fathom right now because most of us don't even want to walk down the street to Mary Brickle to grab dinner afterwards. We have to fathom these ideas. And so we need to understand that what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's calibrating our hearts to remember what has happened so that we can appreciate the reality and desire the future. And so he's moving this direction. And so what he's doing now is he's helping us to realize what's truly going on. So I want you to understand the circumstances of the book of Hebrews. Just being real with you, the first thing, if you're new to church or you haven't been here in a while, we don't know definitively who the writer of the book of Hebrews is. You would think that's kind of a big deal. But we know from many of the different books of the New Testament and the Old Testament who the direct writers are because they either identify themselves in their writing or because of their language or because of the audience that's directed. We can kind of subsidize or almost like chiseled down who the direct writer is, but no consensus has been given. There's kind of some leanings in the direction of Paul and Luke and some other writers and contemporaries of that time, but let's just be real. We don't know who the writer is. And so what the writer is doing is he's setting up the reality of what's happening at this time, which was around 65, 80, around 70, right around the time of the destruction of the Jewish temple, the central gathering place for all of the Israelites to be able to worship Yahweh. And so he's setting up this understanding of how the sacrificial system that's going to be upended by the Roman Empire destroying the temple, and then he's moving into this greater picture for you and me to understand this Jewish dispersion, the Jewish dis diaspora. How many of you have ever been to the Cuban dis diaspora museum that's off of Coral Way? Yeah, so many of you in here, maybe you're familiar with United States history, or maybe you actually are from Cuba. You know firsthand what the idea of the Cuban diaspora is. It's this idea that when the regime of Castro was coming in and taking over Cuba, what was happening is people were fleeing Cuba to the United States for freedom, for protection, for care. So that's our contemporary idea of what a diaspora is. But what's happening in the Jewish diaspora is when the Roman Empire was in charge of all things in the greater Middle East as well as into Europe, what was happening is that there was persecution of Christians and they were being scattered all over the known empire. And so what this writer is doing, this unknown writer is speaking to everybody that is a believer in God, a believer in Christ all throughout the Roman Empire. So this is a broad audience. But what he's trying to do is he's going to hit several major ideas for us to be able to follow through. And so what I want to do is I want to help you understand that these people that are dispersed are all held together by one thing, Christ. Let's take a quick look. Like, if I could get you to do this, take a look around the room. Like, look at the different types of people that are in this room. Like, we've got single people, married people, we've got younger people, wiser people. <laughs> Don't ever use that word publicly. Um, 
we've got people in this room from all nations, from all communities, from all different affinities. We've got artists. We've got architects. We have so many different types of people in this room. But you know what the beautiful thing is? Christ unites us all. So with that in mind, Christ holds the family together. So that's what the writer is doing. He's trying to help everybody, whether you're in greater Jerusalem or Judea, and somehow you're hidden out so that you're not being persecuted, or somehow you made it all the way to Italy, or even maybe as far as Spain. No matter where you're at, Christ holds the family together. And so in this dispersion, what he's trying to do is he's helping everybody recalibrate by understanding several large ideas. And so this next idea is that from what Christ did, this is what we are called to do. And so Hebrews 13 is incredibly practical. And so what the writer is doing is he's instructing the people of Israel to understand that we are called to remember several critical components of what it means to be a believer in God. So the narrative of the people of Yahweh, they first were people that were dispersed. Back in the day when there was Moses and the writer illustrates about Moses and how Jesus is greater than Moses and the journey to the promised land, there was this time in the Israelite history that they were under the captivity of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And so what he does is he illustrates this by reminding people with this sub-knowledge. If you read the book of Hebrews, there are so many different references to the Old Testament about these principles that you and I should never forget. And so he says this, in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 33, he says it like this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Just in case you didn't get it, where this message came from, the great I am, the Lord your God, declares this. And if you don't get it the first time, it's actually repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. And for some of us, when it comes to our political stances, and I'm not trying to become political, but we really need to recognize the understanding of what welcoming the foreigner means. We need to understand that this is a biblical mandate from the book of Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 23, as well as within the Levitical code. It is not just a rule, it is a posture. You and I, because of what Christ did for us, we are to welcome the stranger. And so he hits on this really hard in Hebrews chapter 13. And so the first thing I want you to understand is he repeats this statement multiple times, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This statement is repeated over and over again because they are never to forget the miracle that God did on their behalf. He would deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh. But not only that, we're going to see that not only God delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh, Jesus delivered us out of the hand of Satan. And we're going to see this moving forward. And so what we need to recognize is this bigger principle moving forward is this remembrance of what has happened to you and me when it comes to everything that we do. And so what I want to do is first, we need to read this together in Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your program or your Bible, or if you want to read along on the screen, I want us to understand these words. So we're going to walk through this passage together. So first, let brotherly love continue. That's one verse. That's one quick instruction. So let brotherly love continue. So what I want to do is I want to help us, for some of us that are here, and you're like, how did the scriptures get compiled? The scriptures were compiled by a combination of the Old Testament 
Hebrew writings and the New Testament Greek writings. And so this word, brotherly love, is actually one word in the original Greek. And for some of us, you're already going to know where this directive comes from. But it comes from two root words. One, phylos, which means friend. And then the other, adelphos, which means brother. And so for many of us, we probably already know this. The idea of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's the origin of that name. But what we need to do is recognize that you and I are called in this directive to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just love our brothers. This word is actually a a gender neutral word. It's an idea for all of the family. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love each other the way that Christ loves us. So let me ask you a a reflective question real quick. When was the last time that you loved somebody in the community of Christ the way that Christ loves you? Sacrificially unconditionally, willing to go the extra mile to love and serve someone, maybe even taking the strike on the cheek and willing to give the other? Are we able to give that love to our own community? Because if we can't do that, we're not even practicing the first directive, which is to love our brothers in Christ. And then the next directive he gives is in verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Therefore, some have entertained angels unawares. And some of you are like, is that a grammatical error? No, it's actually, it's like a translation thing. There's a reason why it's unawares versus unaware. So I'll explain that later if you ever want a nerdy time with me. So with all that said, that word hospitality is actually almost the exact same word as Philadelphia. When you break that word hospitality down, it's actually phylos. And then xenos, where for some of us, sadly, we have to know this word because of our current climate of how things are running, the idea of xenophobia. This is where this directive comes in. So we go from brotherly love to this idea of strangerly love. But you really don't want to use that statement. You don't want to create a city called Philoxenia, and it's called the city of strangerly love (laughs) because that just sounds kind of creepy and weird, like stranger danger type thing. So... Parents, keep teaching your kids. So, but what I want to do is, humor aside, we're called to love strangers. We're not called to just love people that come to our things that we like. We're called to love those that it's hard to love. Somebody that's different than you. Somebody that you don't know. Somebody that maybe you don't even know, and maybe they don't even have the same life experiences as you, and let's just get nitty-gritty real for a second, the same color of skin as you, the same ethnicity as you, the same cultural context as you, God calls us to love the family of God as brothers and sisters. But not only that, the Philadelphia idea, he's calling us to the philoxenia idea, to love our neighbors, the strangers. Love them because... We once were strangers. Never forget that even though maybe you're here and maybe you've been a part of Crossbridge Church, maybe you've been a part of church world for a while, never forget that you once were a stranger to God. That should propel you to desire to build relationships with people, to love them the same way that Christ loves you. Not out of some kind of motive or transactional relationship that culture has developed in us because let's just be real Miami really fosters the hype mentality high and the transactions really well what can you do for me 
What circle can you get me into? Can you help my influence on social media so I can sell more products, so I can be more famous? Insta-famous, right? But that deep culture clash is a tension that God is calling us to call out. If we are going to be a church that makes this house a home for other people, we need to remember first, love our brothers and sisters in Christ with deep loving family affection but not only that we're called to love strangers the exact same way because if we're playing the sin of partiality if we treat christians better than we treat strangers why would a stranger ever want to hang out with a christian you're just a walking hypocrite so we need to find the calibration that the writer of hebrews is instructing us to do because he's directing us to love the stranger And so that idea of how the stranger sojourns with us and how Exodus and Deuteronomy remind us of this and how the sojourners of Egypt, we are called to remember that direction. But what I want to do is I want to remind us of that passage that we just read when it talks about welcome the stranger or show hospitality because maybe you have entertained angels unaware. And if you read that and you're like, oh, cool, like I'm going to be nice to people because maybe an angel will come visit me and give me something cool, like, okay, pump the brakes. This isn't touched by an angel. This isn't this kind of world, right? This is actually a directive and a reminder of what Jesus spoke to his followers during his earthly ministry. Jesus directly spoke to this idea by explaining to people that when you treat the least of these with love and consideration, you're not just doing it for those people. You're actually doing it directly unto Jesus himself. And we see this in the book of Matthew in chapter 25. It says it like this. When these people are speaking back to Jesus, they say, And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So we don't have to worry about entertaining angels. We get to love the stranger, which directly is loving God, loving Jesus. So when you find that stranger, that person that's a little bit, uh, like, I'm going to try to find my way around the cubicle so I don't have to deal with that person, or, oh my goodness, that homeless person that, man, I really don't want to engage with them because selfishly, I don't like the way they look, I don't like the way they smell, and I'm scared of them because I've built this up in my mind that every homeless person is a danger to society, which isn't true. We need to recognize the tension that God is calling us to call out. We are not called to live in the spirit of fear. We are called to live in the spirit of courage, of sound mind, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. There is no commandment greater than this. And so the writer of Hebrews is echoing these reminders so that the dispersed Jewish believers, no matter where you're at, no matter what circumstances you're going through, if you're being persecuted, love the family of God. If you are within a a moment of your death, still love the stranger. The, The scriptures even go further to say, love your enemy. Pray for those that persecute you. And so with this great idea, we need to recognize that we are called So lastly, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 3, it says it like this. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. There's a double directive here. One, because 
Jesus clearly says it in the book of Matthew. He says, when you go and visit those that are in prison, you're doing it to me. When you go and serve and care for those that are incarcerated, you are loving and serving them the way that you love and serve me. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of challenge us as a church to kind of think about this because what can happen is we come together, we hear these directives from God through his authors, through the ones that he has divinely inspired, and then we just overly complicate it. It's like, I just read about loving strangers and loving the family of God and caring for those that are prisoners. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, let, let's just keep it super simple. Let's keep it almost like dummy proof. Strangers, what do you do? You welcome them. What do you do with those that are in need? Whether they're naked or hungry, you clothe them or you feed them. And what about those that are in prison or sick? We go visit them. Simple as that. I know some of you are like, well, you don't understand the prison system. And like, you need to da-da-da-da. Like, don't look for excuses. Look for opportunity. Maybe you know someone that's incarcerated. Maybe you have a loved one or a friend that's incarcerated. And your first thought when you think of them is shame. Oh, man, so-and-so. Their life is so messed up. That's why they're in there. Let's be real. All of us in this room, culturally speaking, have probably broken the law once in our lives. Let's be real. When you get on 95 and that traffic that's about to hit Broward, oh, I know that you're swiping into other lanes to try to get around it before you hit the Golden Glaze interchange. Let's just be real. And if a police officer wanted to, he could give us a citation, or if we were driving above 80, which is reckless by the state of Florida, he could actually arrest us for being a reckless driver. But not only that, we need to understand that it's not just a cultural example, it's actually an eternal example. In the eyes of God, whenever one person born into creation, they're already born into a broken world. And the sinful nature is already innate in us. So we don't have a desire to do good works. We actually have an innate desire to do things that are against the will of God. And so we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that first, we do not do good works in order to earn the favor of God. We do good works because we have the favor of God. And because God's righteousness has been given to us in the name and in the grace of Jesus Christ, therefore, we go to the harder places in Miami. We go to the difficult places in our workplace. We go to the difficult communities that we would be scared to walk through because we're scared of prejudice. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge us as a church. We here at Crossbridge Church, we want to make sure that first we are rooted in our values of being a cross-focused church. That means we believe that everything that we do comes from the lens of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross the death, burial, and resurrection, the satisfactory payment of sin for you and I. His death, his burial, and resurrection redeems everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord. So from that cross-focused idea, we are a community-driven church that wants to love the people that are a part of this community. But not only that, we are going to be more city positive by engaging with opportunities to love and serve those that are in need, 
that are disenfranchised, and those that are strangers to us. Our CityServe team is already working on an opportunity for us to be able to serve at the Miami Rescue Mission. So if your heart is for caring for those that are less fortunate, that don't have a shelter, that don't have a clothes on their back, we want you to be a part of that. If you want to have more information about that in your program, just let us know. You can drop the cards off at the end. But we want to be a church. If we're going to do big things, we have to prepare our hearts. It's not about what we do because anybody can do righteous works. But remember, righteous works are as worth, have just as much worth as a filthy rag. So we need to remember that you and I are called first to understand the grace of God. And so this big idea as a church, we want people to understand that if we are going to be a church that makes the house here a home for others, I just want to make it as simple as possible. Love the family. I know that we can pick Friendsgiving as our preferred mode of celebrating the holidays, but I want to encourage you, don't forsake the family of God. Love the family of God. And the way you love the family of God is you get to know the family of God. Carter talked about this a couple weeks ago. There might be some people in this room that you don't know. And we would encourage you not just to get to know someone this week because Tommy guilted you into it. That's not gospel-driven community. That's guilt-driven. Gospel-driven community is because of the work of Jesus Christ and what he did for you and me. There's somebody in here that is a stranger to me, but you know what? I'm going to move from being a stranger to them to being a fellow brother and sister in Christ to them. Love the family of God. But not only that, we're called to love strangers. Philadelphia, Philizinos, it's the exact same idea. It's just two different people groups because the love of God is great for all people. His desire is that his loving kindness would lead people to repentance. And so if we want the city of Miami to change, we need to be examples, demonstrations of that loving kindness because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And then lastly, we need to make sure that we love those that are not just away from us, but those that are incarcerated, those that are in prison. It is a clear directive that we can't just say, oh, well, they'll get to it. No, this is on us. We have a federal prison less than a mile away from us that have been able to serve in different capacities before. We've got inmates that stay in Miami longer than most people. So we need to recognize our God-given directive to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And who are our neighbors? The homeless the girls that are working the clubs to be able to pay for their lives because their broken family and their idea of what success means that in order for my family to be successful, I have to do things that I would not be proud of of telling my children about. For executives that are climbing the corporate ladder to the point that the identity and the significance of their employees is lost. The affluence of being able to live in this city on the weekends, but able to do work in other cities. Miami is a cross-section of so many different types of people, but these are our neighbors. And in order to make our house a home, we need to welcome each other as brothers and sisters, and we need to welcome those that are not yet a part of the family. I would love to see the day, and we've already had this happen. We have people that come to our church that are homeless. Never treat the homeless with disrespect. 
Because if we didn't have a relationship with God, we would be eternally homeless. Never treat someone with with such disrespect because we can never forget what God did for us. I hope that every single moment of our lives is an opportunity to remember the grace of God and what he did for us. Because we're not here except for the grace of God. So church, I want to challenge you. In light of what God has directed us through his writing to the Hebrews that were dispersed at that time period, we are called to remember and to direct ourselves in the same light. Love the family of God. Love our strangers, our neighbors. And let's make sure that we do not neglect those that are in prison. Because when we do this, we are doing it unto the Lord. So church, let's take a moment and pray together. Father God, we thank you for this night. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you're reminding us of. And for many of us in this room, we want to do things that would love and serve you and love and serve people that are in our greater community. But maybe just things have gotten lost in the shuffle. Maybe our priorities have gotten a little bit just disorganized or maybe there's some really pressing things going on in our lives. And Father, you know all circumstances and all things. But Lord, I pray that tonight is a reminder from your word that we are called to love you and to serve you, and you have given us some simple ways so that we can remind ourselves of how great you are and how good we are supposed to love and serve our neighbors. Not because of how great we are, but because of how awesome and wonderful and matchless is the name of Jesus. So Father, we come before you, and as we are in this season of preparing our church by making this house a home, remind us to do whatever we can do to love sacrificially and to care generously for our immediate church family and for the greater city of Miami. Because God, you are for Miami. And we love you, Father, and we come before you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. And so,